So just like we kind of have expectations about how a church service is supposed to go, this Sunday we're going to talk about expectations. There's a word equation that we use. I did not invent this. This was out of, I don't know, some uh, marriage book that I read years ago, but it is something that we have applied to many aspects of life and something that we refer to a lot in my household. And that word equation is expectations minus reality equals disappointment. Expectations minus reality equals disappointment. Because when things do not go the way that we think they should, we become disappointed and frustrated. This can happen especially often in marriage. Typically, as happens, you end up spending a lifetime with someone who thinks very differently than you do and acts very differently than you do and has different expectations than you do. Let's take, for example, date night. Chelsea, whom you saw up here earlier, is a planner. I, however, am a procrastinator or a, well, figure it out when we get there type of person. Okay? So as you may imagine, this can sometimes cause difficulties in our relationship and especially early on. So let's say we plan a date night on a Friday and throughout the week, starting Monday, she starts dropping Subtle hints about uh, where she would like to go, the fact that she would like to have reservations made, what type of food that she wants to eat, okay? So by the time that Friday night date night rolls around and I realize that her beautiful new dress does not match my cargo shorts, that the new restaurant in town cannot fit us in last minute, and we end up with burgers instead of Japanese steak, it is much, much too late to correct that issue. Expectations minus reality equals disappointment. We become disappointed and frustrated when people don't act the way we think they ought. Having been married now for over 10 years, we know a little bit more about how each other works, and we understand that we have to deal with the spouse that we have not the spouse that we necessarily want. She now knows that if she wants something like that, she has to lay things out for me very, very plainly. I actually, I'm going to be a little vulnerable here and confess that I have a disability, okay? It is a, it, it predominantly affects males. It's called selective hearing. And... It has caused a lot of issues. I've overcome a lot of it, and it's still a work in progress, but she understands now that she has to say very clearly how she wants things to go. I, on the other hand, understand now that my wife, my beautiful bride, being the planner that she is, wants things to be planned out, but doesn't always want the stress of having to be the planner. It took me a long time to get that. Another area that I personally struggle with expectations is Christmas gift giving, okay? A flaw that I have in myself is I have pretty high expectations for Christmas, okay? I know what I want. I make it very clear what I want well ahead of time, sometimes even posting it on Facebook. Hey, here's my list, guys, okay? Uh, and I rarely get what I want, the, the actual thing. I even make it cheap. I don't make it expensive, but I rarely get what I want. 
and so I don't like opening gifts in front of people while they're watching me because I'm really afraid that the disappointment is going to come through on my face and they're going to sense that. I, I have a really hard, hard time faking excitement about something that I never wanted. We have something in, in my family growing up called the red shirt theory in relation to gifts. My grandfather is a, a, a rancher, I mean a true blue cowboy. And every day of his life, for as long as I've been alive, he wears a red long sleeve shirt with pearl button snaps. Every day, except if he's wearing a suit to go to church, that's what he wears. So my mom would say, Dad, what do you want for Christmas? And he'd say, well, I need some more red shirts. And she'd say, okay. So Christmas would come, and she would get my grandpa a couple red shirts, but she would also get my grandpa some shirts of, you know, other colors, maybe a purple one, maybe a blue one. My grandpa was very polite. However, those shirts were never seen again after Christmas Day. And it would always hurt my mom's feelings that he didn't appreciate the gifts of the multicolored shirts that she gave him. That's not what he asked for. That's not what his expectations, that wasn't her expectations of him and how he was going to react. So eventually, my mom learned that the red-shirted cowboy wanted red shirts. And that's what she got him for Christmas. And to this day, that's still what he wears well into his 80s. And that's what he gets for Christmas, okay? She had to change her expectations, and she had to deal with my grandpa how he was, not how she wanted him to be. Expectations minus reality equals disappointment. So let's explore a story of expectations in Scripture. Uh, do your best to follow along with me here because... I'm going to try and break some of this down as we go, uh, so follow my thought train here. Many of you may be familiar with this story that I'm going to reference as the triumphal entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. The people in the city had very high expectations for a leader who would lead an earthly kingdom into victory over their Roman oppressors. So let's look at how this story plays out. Uh, let me set the stage for you. Jesus and his disciples are headed towards Jerusalem for Passover. Passover was a time when all of the Jews of that day would be highly concentrated in one area uh, in the city of Jerusalem for the Passover ceremony. At that point, this is towards the end of Jesus' ministry, it's only about a week before his crucifixion, uh, people knew who Jesus was and expected him to be their savior. But he would not be the kind of savior that they expected. People wanted Jesus very badly to be a political leader, and that is not what he came to earth to do. So we're going to look in Luke chapter 19, starting at verse 28. Luke 19, starting at verse 28. Uh, I'm going to read just a few words in, and then I'm going to stop, okay? So follow, try to follow me here. Verse 28, after telling this story, the story that Jesus is referring to that was just told in the previous chapter was told because the people, the believers, were asking Jesus if the earthly kingdom of Jerusalem would come at once. Jesus, is it time? Is it time for you to come in and get rid of our Roman oppressors and, and become king? Is it time? Is it going to come now? 
Now what he did, instead of answering their question directly, is he told a parable, as he often did. And the parable was instructions not about what he would do, but about what his believers should do between his rise into heaven and his second coming. So here already, before we even get into the verse, the scripture we have for today, people already are coming to Jesus with what their expectations are of what he is going to do. So let's continue reading. Jesus went on toward Jerusalem, walking ahead of his disciples. As he came to the towns of Bethpage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives, he sent two disciples ahead. Go into that village over there, he told them. As you enter it, you will see a young donkey tied there that no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks, why are you untying that colt? Just say, the Lord needs it. So they went on and found the colt just as Jesus had said. And sure enough, as they were untying it, the owners asked them, why are you untying that colt? And the disciples simply replied, the Lord needs it. So they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their garments over it for him to ride on. Okay, so I'm going to stop with that right there. If I went out into the parking lot right now and found a really nice car and started breaking into it, and the owners came out like, hey, uh, what you doing there, Bubba? 911, you know. And I'm going, ah, don't worry, the Lord needs it. They're probably not going to react very well, and it's probably not going to stop the police from coming. Okay? But in that day, people knew who Jesus was. They knew that he was there. And they were more than likely, the people who owned this donkey were aware of the prophecy that was about to be fulfilled by Jesus taking this donkey and riding into Jerusalem. So what is, the, what is a prophecy? This prophecy that they were more likely aware of, which made them like, yeah, sure, take this donkey, stranger. Uh, a, a prophecy itself is expectation setting about something that is going to occur. Okay, It is, in a sense, laying out expectations of what is to come. So let's look at the prophecy uh, that says what is about to be fulfilled. So I'm going to jump uh, to a different scripture right now. Zechariah 9, 9 and 10. Zechariah 9, 9 and 10. Rejoice, O people of Zion. Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious. Yet he is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. I will remove the battle chariots from Israel and war horses from Jerusalem. I will destroy all the weapons used in battle, and your king will bring peace to the nations. His realm will stretch from sea to sea and from the Euphrates River to the ends of the earth. So, some significance about, about the donkey here. Back in those times, if you were a ruler or a king, and you came riding in on a horse, it symbolized that you were coming in in a state of war or battle or conflict. If as a ruler, you rode in on a donkey, it symbolized that you were coming in peace. The donkey was a clear and recognizable sign that Jesus was not there to incite a violent rebellion against the Romans. The passage of Scripture fulfilled here is full 
of anti-war imagery, yet the people could still not bring themselves to understand or embrace Jesus' true purpose here. Let's read on. As he rode along, the crowd spread out their garments on the road ahead of him. When he reached the place where the road started down the Mount of Olives, all of his followers began to shout and sing as they walked along, praising God for all the wonderful miracles they had seen. Blessings on the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. In the Matthew version of this story, it records that the people of Jerusalem were shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, which means to save or savior. So in this case, whereas a normal ruler or a regular king would have had chariots uh, and a procession of of people uh, and all these servants following him. Jesus rides in on a donkey and normally the well-to-do would be throwing roses, uh, you know, praising their leader coming out. But in in Jesus' case, these were all simple people who saw Jesus coming and they grabbed whatever they had. So in this case, they grabbed some well-worn garments and and threw it in the path. They grabbed palm branches, which was readily available at the time. They couldn't wait to worship the one who they thought would liberate them. The excitement was palpable. Okay, you've got people grabbing whatever they've got and throwing it down. They're so excited that Jesus is here. It was, it was so alive at that point that the Pharisees had to say, Teacher, rebuke your followers for saying things like this. And he replied, If they kept quiet, the stones along the road would burst into cheers. Or burst into cheers. There was no quieting the excitement in this crowd. Reading on, verse 41. But as he came closer to Jerusalem and saw the city ahead, he began to weep. So can you imagine, picture this in your head, a president on inauguration day weeping or sobbing. Can you imagine a general getting his fourth star sobbing and crying at his pinning ceremony this image of Jesus coming in is a far cry from anything we would expect a powerful ruler to call a triumphant entry reading on Jesus then says how I wish today that you of all people would understand the way to peace But now it is too late and peace is hidden from your eyes. Before long, your enemies will build ramparts against your walls and encircle you and close in on you from every side. They will crush you into the ground and your children with you. Your enemies will not leave a single stone in place because you did not recognize it when God visited you. What Jesus is referring to here is the prediction of the siege and destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, within a lifetime of many of the people here who were at the triumphal entry. This is a time when the Jews actually did gather and try to rebel against the Romans, and it was a huge failure. The temple was destroyed, the city was destroyed, just as Jesus predicted. So weeping during a prediction of military defeat is far and away from an uplifting battle cry of a person 
who's about to lead a rebellion and install an earthly kingdom. So, despite prophecy, despite symbolism, despite Jesus' own words and a three-year ministry that all pointed to the fact that Jesus would not be the earthly ruler they expected, they still wanted the Savior that they wanted. Not the Savior that he was. And when their expectations were not met, they became disappointed and they turned on him. In just a short week, these same people, Hosanna, Hosanna, we can't wait. Oh, let's throw everything out. This is fantastic. He's here to save us. In a week, they're going to be yelling what in the crowd? Crucify him. Crucify him. Crucify him. Give us Barabbas. Crucify him. So now, let me ask you this. How do we react when God does not meet our expectations? What happens when God doesn't do the things for us that we think he should do? How do we react when God calls us to do something we just flat out don't want to do? What about when we read something in Scripture that doesn't fit with our own personal worldview? Jesus often responded in parables when asked a question, including in the passage immediately preceding the entry into Jerusalem where he did not confirm the disciples' expectations. What happens when we ask God for a straight answer and instead, we get something we don't quite understand. What happens when he convicts us of our sin that maybe up until that point, just kind of think it's normal. We're desensitized to it. It's just a part of life. Because, you know, the very next thing that Jesus does after he enters Jerusalem is he goes to the temple and overturns the tables of the money changers and the merchants. How many of those people at the temple there we're just going with the flow. Never really thinking or analyzing too hard about the sinfulness of what they were doing. Now, Jesus comes along and aggressively and literally overturns their livelihood. Do you think those people wanted to worship Jesus in that moment? When you come to this church or any other church on Sunday morning, are you worshiping the God who might be asking you to do something uncomfortable? Maybe something bold? Something that might disrupt your own expectations for your life? What happens when Jesus doesn't liberate us from our suffering the way we think he ought to. Like the Jews on Palm Sunday, are you expecting the God that is or are you expecting the God that you want? Expectations minus reality equals disappointment. Disappointment. 
Jesus came to earth and took the punishment that we deserved for the ugliness inside of us. He is more worried about your soul seeking this truth and entering and keeping a close relationship with him than he is meeting the expectations of whatever version of Jesus you have pictured in your mind. By the way, if the God who created the vastness of the universe actually did put himself in the small little box that our expectations make for him, what a sad day that would be. My challenge for you today is this. Examine your expectations. Expect a God that sometimes gives you confusing answers to direct questions. Expect a God that sometimes gives you unsolicited, specific instructions that will make you uncomfortable and will require you to be bold. Expect a God that can see everyone's mistakes and their sin, past, present, and future, and weeps because of your suffering. Expect a God that cares about saving you so much that he desperately tries to get you to understand who he is and how to follow him to salvation. Unfortunately, unfortunately, sometimes the only thing trying to stand in his way is our own expectations. Please pray with me and the band come up. Father in heaven, thank you for who you are. Thank you for sometimes not answering prayers. Thank you for sometimes nudging us in the right direction. Thank you for sometimes allowing us to experience the pain of our sin. Father, you are so great. You are the creation. We are the created. We know that you love us so much. So much, in fact, that you sent your son to earth where people would have expectations of him to the point that he would be killed. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for not fitting inside the small box that we have for you. Thank you for not being that genie that we rub when we need something. Father, you are great and you are holy and we love you. In your precious name we pray, amen.